Romans 10, uh, 18 to 25. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I was rereading last week a letter that I had, I've kept uh, for quite a long time, down through the years, it was sent uh, by my father on my 21st birthday. A uh, bit of context here. He was, he's never really been a very prolific letter writer, so it was very special to get uh, this letter from him. And I was hundreds of miles away at the time. I was down in uh, Reading University studying agriculture, and uh, he was home in Skye. And after some reminiscences, generalities about how Time flies quickly. Uh, some news about the, the church and the family and the sheep. He wrote this, which uh, has stuck with me uh, for some time. Uh, he says, It's wonderful to know you start life anchored in Christ, and that no matter what the future has in store, there is nothing to fear. One wonders why the majority around us should wish to miss out. That is a question many of us ask uh, as Christians. Why don't people trust in Jesus? Why don't people trust in Jesus? Uh, belief is not the enigma. Unbelief is the enigma. It's perplexing. Because after all, the gospel is good news. That's what it means. That's what it is. And yet, most of your friends and colleagues and neighbours seem to be resistant to the gospel. Maybe closer to home, uh, you yourself here this morning aren't a Christian despite lifelong exposure to the gospel. Why is that? Have you ever uh, looked into your heart and investigated honestly uh, the question, why am I still sitting on the fence? Chapters 9 to 11 of uh, Romans are really asking one question and trying to, to answer it in a number of ways. The question is, why is it that the Israelites, uh, God's chosen people, why have they not come to believe in Jesus? Now, some of them have. Paul, of course, was a Jew, uh, and he always went to preach to the Jews first. But the majority of them hadn't trusted in Jesus, and many of them were very strongly opposed to the gospel. And that created a problem in the minds of many Christians, because uh, Israel had been prepared for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, they were a chosen people. They had lots of privileges, uh, lots of promises. 
But now, pardon me, the Messiah has come in Jesus, and yet, by and large, uh, they have rejected Jesus. And so, what does that say in regard to Israel's status as a chosen people? And what does it say about the promises of God? Uh, Have they become of no effect because of the unbelief of the Jews? And Paul has uh, been answering this question, and he's got three answers to the question, uh, have God's promises failed because Israel doesn't believe? Uh, The first answer in chapter 9 is to do with God's election, God chooses, and he points out that it was always God's purpose uh, to have a a remnant or a small number from Israel uh, as his people. So this was part of God's choosing purpose. And then, uh, skipping on a bit, in chapter 11, uh, he's going to say, well, God still has some great things in store for Israel. There's future blessing for Israel. But from chapter 9, verse 30, all the way through this chapter, uh, he's, his, his second, or his second uh, answer has been to say, well, the Israelites themselves were responsible to make the right decision. God cannot be blamed for the unbelief of Israel. They're responsible. They've willfully rejected God's way of righteousness. Uh, They've tried to establish their own righteousness, but they did have the opportunity to respond. And Paul lists the things that must happen if people are to have an opportunity to respond. Um, uh, uh, Preachers need to be sent. Preachers need to preach so that people can hear and understand and call on the name of the Lord. And if this happens, people have an opportunity to believe in God. So there's God's election and, and also the, the, the free choice of people to believe. And sometimes it's quite hard for us to get these two aspects together in our minds. Uh, but by way of digression, I like the way that James Montgomery Boyce uh, explains this relationship between our responsibility to respond to the gospel and the fact that God chooses. Uh, he says it, it works through like this. There's a progression. First, human responsibility. We're responsible to respond. Second, the perverse exercise of human responsibility in rejecting God. And third, salvation by God's sovereign grace. And then it says predestination could be called God's secret weapon because apart from it, none could be saved. So, we are finishing off a section which is about the responsibility of the Jewish people to believe. But of course, it could be applied to all people. All people everywhere have a responsibility to believe uh, in the gospel. And Paul points, first of all, to the voice of God that goes out to all the earth. And secondly, to the fact that it's the clear voice of God. It's a voice that's understood And then in a beautiful closing section, he speaks about the outstretched hands of God, the voice of God, the clear voice of God, the outstretched hands of God. It's not true that the Jews haven't believed because they didn't hear. The gospel has gone out. 
It's gone out to all the earth. And Paul quotes Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. It's Psalm 19, verse 4. In other words, they can't claim ignorance. Uh, That doesn't get them off the hook because they have heard. The good news has been preached uh, to the furthest reaches of the land. Now, in Psalm 19, God is Uh, speaking through the psalmist about the way he reveals himself. And in the first part, God is testifying to us through creation. Uh, the, The heavens, the stars, the land, the trees, the forest, they are in effect God's voice to us speaking. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech They use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So when we ask the question, what about the people who haven't heard about God? The answer is there are no people who haven't heard about God. Everybody has heard about God because God's voice has gone out to all the earth. The difficulty, of course, is uh, that... Paul is speaking about what we call general revelation. God speaking to people through creation. And the, the subject in Romans 10 is actually what we would call special revelation. Uh, God's written word. Uh, the God's revelation that could not be known otherwise by him speaking through the prophets and ultimately through his son. That's really what Paul is speaking about now. So why does he use... Uh, Psalm 19, the beginning of Psalm 19, which is talking about God's revelation through creation. And the point that he seems to be making is that just as the message of creation goes out to all people indiscriminately, so the gospel is sounded out indiscriminately to the furthest reaches of the world. Is that true? Aren't there places where uh, people haven't heard about Jesus, even uh, Jewish people who haven't heard about Jesus. Well, Paul is speaking in a, in a way that he does elsewhere in the epistles. He's speaking in a representative way. Um, in Colossians, for example, he writes, this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Now, clearly, Paul isn't meaning to say that Every person without exception in every country, in every part of the world, has heard the gospel. He didn't mean that, but simply that the gospel had been widely proclaimed to all kinds of people. And this is the amazing fact. We are used, especially in the context of missionary meetings, we're used to hearing about the great unfinished task. And that's true. There are millions of people who have yet to hear the gospel. But we sometimes don't dwell as we should on the amazing fact that there are billions of people who have heard. And it's amazing today that in some of the remotest parts of the world there are vibrant churches. That should give us pause for thought. That all around the world people have heard about Jesus. That's really great. That's a true fact. 
was having my uh, car valeted on a very rare uh, occurrence, I have to say, uh, at the BP garage down from the Albion Rover Stadium. And there's a bunch of Albanian guys that were doing the work, and they were really good. Uh, they were very, very hard-working. And uh, we got chatting afterwards, and I mentioned to them that their country used to be known as a country which was completely atheist. They boasted that there were no Christians, but it's different today that there are many Christians in Albania. I invited them along to church, and I left my, my card with them. But they were an example of a people group. The gospel has penetrated. The word of God has gone out to the farthest reaches of the world. And all around you in Coatbridge, there are reminders of the gospel. And we need to bear that in mind and not become too overwhelmed by the fact that we are in a, a, a position of, of spiritual decline. We still see uh, wayside pulpits outside churches. Uh, there are the reminders of church spires. Uh, there are Christians. There are hotels which have Bibles by the bedside. Uh, there are reminders of the God who is there all around us. The message has gone out to all the world. The voice of God. Secondly, the clear voice of God. If there's no excuse from not hearing uh, God's word, then perhaps they didn't understand the good news that uh, Jesus is the Savior. Paul's response is to quote uh, again from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, and also Isaiah 65, verse 1 and 2. I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation who, that has no understanding. I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Who's Paul talking about here? Uh, well, the, the you part, that's obviously the Jewish people. I will make you envious. And those who are not a nation are essentially everybody else. Well, we call them the Gentiles. Everybody who's not a Jew are Gentiles. Uh, that doesn't mean that they weren't organized into nations. It means that they weren't the special people of God, those who are not a nation. Uh, they weren't God's chosen nation. They didn't have the Jewish privilege of being a people under God, a people whose God was the Lord. And now suddenly, the, the gospel is being proclaimed to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles, and it seems to the Israelites that their, their special status of being a privileged special people has been taken away from them. Again, the Gentiles or non-Jews are those who have no understanding. It's quite remarkable because at one level they were very learned. You know, the, the Greeks, uh, they were the, 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 the nursery of philosophy. And yet they were ignorant spiritually. They knew nothing about the one true God. And they didn't seek God. Although they had plenty of evidence uh, all around them for the one true God, they were pursuing their own ideas about religion uh, until the Christian missionaries came to them. And wow! <coughs> they believed. And they believed in large numbers. They were found by God. And on the other hand, the Jews who would have said that they were seeking God, they were earnest seekers of God, 
uh, they had rejected God. So Paul says that the Jews who were seeking God, who had the privilege of being a special status nation, rejected Jesus, even although they understood. They got it, but they rejected it. And as confirmation of the fact that they understood it, although they rejected it, he quotes Deuteronomy 32, 21, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. wonder, as we read it together, and you were following through the logic, did you wonder, how is that an explanation that they understood it? Why does the, the fact that they were envious and angry mean to say that they got the message? Well, it's precisely that emotional reaction to others believing in Jesus, which explains that they did understand. Uh, if the Jews did not understand the gospel of grace through the work of Jesus, if the gospel was simply nonsense to them, gibberish, then they would have been quite indifferent to the fact that Gentiles were believing in Jesus and becoming Christians. They would have said, let these Gentiles go on and believe in this newfangled faith. We've got our Judaism. We've got what's better. But they didn't do that. They were envious of them and they were angry that they were believing in Jesus because they got the gospel. They understood the gospel. Instead of smugness and complacency, there was a heated response of jealousy and anger to the Gentiles responding to the message. They knew very well the message that the Gentiles were believing in was a message of salvation by faith and not works. They understood that that wasn't contradicting Judaism, but it was a fulfillment of all the prophets uh, had said. They knew deep down that it was true and they didn't want it and they didn't want it shared. Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because you see that in our day as well, in, in a different kind of context. You ever wonder why it is that the new atheists get so worked up? You know what, we're talking about the, the writers like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and all these people. <laughs> they don't simply lay out the case for atheism. They get very angry. They're very shrill. Uh, and there's something that's quite telling there. Sam Harris, for example, packed as many provocative insults as he could into his book, The End of Faith. Richard Dawkins is such an angry old man that he is now viewed with embarrassment uh, by even those who are in his own camp. Uh, he's become a kind of crusading Mary Whitehouse for atheism. And People are just distancing him, themselves from him. He is really worked up against Christianity. Why are they so shrill, so angry, so invested against Christianity? Because they've heard and they've understood the gospel and they reject it firmly. Otherwise, 
Why get worked up? People hate the gospel because they reject the rule of Christ. Uh, But there's also something in the gospel that people don't like, and that is the fact that to be saved, you cannot contribute your own righteousness. People hate salvation by faith in Christ alone. The late Ray Steadman, the American preacher, uh, quoted once a letter from a Jewish rabbi uh, who was trying to persuade a former synagogue member not to become a Christian. Actually, the, the context was that this guy, this, this younger Jewish guy, did become a Christian, and he was at this point in Steadman's congregation. And Steadman is sharing the letter that his rabbi had written to try to uh, prevent him coming to faith in Christ. This is what he said. The Messiah question is central to Christianity. This is the hub around which their whole theology rotates. To make this your major concern is to play their game. We Jews have a belief in a Messiah, but this is not too rigidly defined nor of central concern. According to our belief, the Messiah is a man descended from the house of David, since God had promised not to replace the line of David with another, who will defeat the enemies of the Jews, restore the people to the land of Israel, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and reign there and introduce an era of peace. The advent of the Messiah has to do with God's plan for actualizing his plans in the world. The situation is quite different for Christians. For the Christian, he believes that nothing that man does can help. Man necessarily exists in a state of sin. Ethical living, obedience to God, goodness, all are of no avail. The only way that a man can get out of a state of damnation is to believe that Jesus is his saviour. Or Messiah, quite a different meaning for the word. Thus the whole purpose of religion is for man to be in Jesus, i.e. to accept this belief in Jesus as his saviour. The law is not only ineffective but unnecessary because once one has accepted Jesus, one of the byproducts is that he's essentially good and needs no direction from the law. From this point of view, one of the most basic and almost exclusive concerns of religion is the Messiah. Don't be shifted to that question without realizing the difference in import and meaning that places Messiah as used by a Jew and Messiah as used by a Christian worlds apart. That's very telling, actually, isn't it? It's actually pretty accurate up to a point. Uh, It's accurate insofar as Jesus is right at the center of Christianity. Everything hinges around him. Uh, And it's interesting also because this desperate plea from a rabbi uh, reflects the ongoing view of Judaism that the Messiah is a mere man despite the Old Testament speaking about his divinity. Uh, Think of Psalm 2, Isaiah 53 and such like. Uh, Think also of the anxiety of the rabbi in his letter that keeping of the law was threatened by someone such as this young man turning to Christianity. That's ultimately what bugs people who understand the gospel. People resent the idea that they're prevented from pitching in with their own goodness. 
the same preacher, Ray Sedman, he told uh, a story about uh, a young man he knew uh, who had become a Christian. This young man was incredibly wealthy. Uh, he had made millions uh, in business. And on his conversion, he tried to witness to his other wealthy friends, and none of them showed any interest. Uh, and eventually, he settled on a very unusual way by which to demonstrate the gospel. Uh, he sat down and he wrote out a check for a million dollars. And he would have been good to, uh, for that million dollar check. He was a wealthy guy. And he took his check around to his friends and said to each one in turn, I've always highly regarded you as a friend. I've always wanted to do something for you. Would you receive this check from me? And people would <laughs> look at the check and they would see the amount written on the check. And when they saw that, they would hand it back and say, I can't take that for you, from you. And he tried it with about a dozen of his friends, and no one would take it, although it was a valid offer. And finally, he accepted the fact that deeply embedded in the human nature is something which doesn't want to be helped too much, doesn't want to be the receiver of great riches without having some part in contributing to it. In other words, there's something deep within us which finds it very problematic to receive grace. The clear voice of God, finally, the outstretched hands of God. The, the last verses are really quite remarkable. Uh, they describe God as holding out his hands all day long to a disobedient and obstinate people. It's a beautiful picture. Uh, it's a picture of the pleading God. A God who is entreating people to trust in him, to commit themselves to his way of salvation. Imagine a father uh, holding out his hands uh, to a child and urging the child to trust him, to jump into his hands. Or maybe better imagine a fireman at the end of a ladder holding out his hands to uh, a woman uh, who is trying to extricate herself from a burning house. Uh, she's uh, in the window and he's holding out his hands, pleading with her to trust him to come and be helped. The outstretched hands of a pleading God. It's a remarkable picture because, you see, the gospel is in one sense a command. It's a proclamation. Uh, not to obey is disobedience. And yet, God is here pictured as entreating his hands are outstretched, and they're outstretched all day long. Now, you don't need to do this now, but if you had your hands outstretched that like I have, uh, you would find that uh, after only a few minutes, it becomes very hard to keep your hands stretched out. Uh, after an hour, it's extremely painful. And the picture is of a God who is patient and persevering, in speaking 
to people who are resistant and stubborn and disobedient, and yet God wants them to come and to trust him and to trust his son whom he has provided for them. And he pleads with sinners. And maybe God has done this with you uh, today. Maybe you're not a Christian yet. And you can recognize uh, throughout the course of your life, throughout your life's history, times when God has been holding out his hands to you. In infancy, when you had parents who told you about Jesus, who explained the Bible and made it clear what it was to trust in Jesus. Uh, you've heard sermons when the gospel has been plain. That's really Paul's point now that the gospel is plain and it's a, an entreatment to come to Christ. And God has ordered your life in different ways, even by things which are hard happening to you, because when we are sick or disappointed or when we feel alone, sometimes God is simply stripping away the things which are uh, extraneous and not really that critical and important. And helping us to see the things that are important and that are of eternal significance. And in that way, he's holding out his hands to you. And Christian friends who lived a life of integrity and Christians who died with hope at the end. In all of these ways, God has outstretched hands. And maybe in God's providence, you're in church this morning. Because the voice of God is to call you to trust those outstretched hands and commit yourself to them. How do we do that? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent. Turn around and believe the good news. The good news that will make you Christ's child. Christ's uh, alone. God's child will give you hope for eternity. The outstretched hands of God. May God bless to us his precious word. May he bless his gospel to us. Amen. I'm going to close now uh, <coughs> singing a, a, a hymn that uh, speaks about the, the wonder of the, the spread of the gospel and the final triumph of the gospel when so many from so many different nations will uh, appear uh, before and with Christ. I cannot tell why he whom angels worship should set his love upon the sons of men, or why as shepherd he should seek the wanderers to bring them back. They know not how or when. But this I know, that he was born of Mary, when Bethlehem's manger was his only home, and that he lived at Nazareth and laboured, and so the Saviour, Saviour of the world is come.